Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. As we know, sponsorship is one of the most effective means of marketing. And in a US $60 billion industry, and it's growing, where brands spend tens to hundreds of millions of dollars on sponsorship, the gut feel is still largely being used. And the biggest challenge marketers face is quantifying return on investment for their sponsorships. It's a tough gig, and it often traces back to disparate data sources, a lack of a measurement framework, or even consistent KPIs. That's long been an issue. And then COVID came along and everyone was forced to look at all areas of their business with a keen eye. As such, some interesting trends have emerged around sponsorships at brands. Brands who are using data are seeing greater returns. There's an emphasis on higher investments and fewer deals, which makes optimal performance even more critical. And there's an increasing pressure to really justify the return on investment or return on objective with market spend growing. So for a long time, what a lot of brands feel is that they are reactive rather than proactive in this space. And the pain points that these brands feel, some of which may resonate with you, include there being no holistic system in place and deals are coming in from several sources, and that they rely on season recaps from properties, which without sounding harsh, is is a little bit equivalent to kids grading their own homework. And to make things worse, the recaps are usually provided months after the fact, so they become really difficult to act on in a busy and dynamic brand environment. If you work for a brand, none of that is probably new or shocking. It makes sense, right? But the age-old question for brands is still, okay, so how do we properly manage, measure, and optimize our sponsorship portfolio? I'll come back to that question for you. Hi, I'm Daniel Oyston, host of Inside Sponsorship, and you're listening to episode 114 brought to you by Core Software. It's great to have you join us for another show wherever you are in the world and whatever your connection to the sponsorship industry is. And I'm pleased to say that I have a shout out. Liam Gulliver connected with me on LinkedIn and said, Hi, Daniel. I just wanted to flick you a message to say I really enjoy the podcast. I can't even remember how I came across it, but it's been great. And it's led me to conversations with a couple of your guests and hopefully some potential deals. Sports and sustainability, the place I work in, has a big role to play over the coming years. Thanks for getting in touch, Liam, and thanks for listening. And yes, I agree with you. Sports and sustainability does have a big role to play over the coming years, and it's going to be super interesting to see how it all plays out and evolves. So circling back to the age-old question from brands, how do we properly manage, measure, and optimize our sponsorship portfolio? Well, as you all know, this podcast over the past 113 episodes has never been about pushing product onto you. Sure, you all know the show is brought to you by Core Software, and you all know the amazing and awesome solutions that they have. But the brand question, how do we properly manage, measure, and optimize our sponsorship portfolio, has led Core to a very exciting point. And so you'll have to indulge myself and my guest a little in this episode. Now, I promise it isn't a show focused on pumping up a product, but it is almost impossible to talk about this space and how to do it properly without touching on the solution that is on offer. As such, joining me in this episode is Scott Tilton, EVP Sponsorship Analytics at Core Software. Now, you might remember Scott from an episode a few years back where he joined us as the CEO of Hookit, the AI-powered sponsorship analytics and valuation platform. 
Well, the exciting news was that Hookit was acquired by Core Software in February this year, and since then they've been working together to develop the most comprehensive set of engagement marketing solutions across social, sponsorship, fan engagement, and data management for the sports and entertainment industry. Which leads us to the answer to the brand question, how do we properly manage, measure, and optimize our sponsorship portfolio? And that's because Core has recently launched its portfolio optimization platform. It's a single source platform for brands to manage, measure, and optimize their portfolio. Now, in a nutshell, the platform brings together 100 plus data integrations and Core's data submission portal centralizes the licensed partner and first party data that you need to manage, measure, and optimize your portfolio of partnerships. At the beginning of the partnership portfolio, it allows brands to accept, review, score, and act on sponsorship proposals. And it also allows brands to uncover revenue generating opportunities by exploring global and competitive benchmarks, prospects, best practices, and market intel. Now, once a sponsorship moves into the activation phase, the platform provides easily accessible partnership assets and activation metrics all trackable from one place so as to improve collaboration and performance. Now, this gives brands the ability to strengthen collaboration with aggregated key information about each partner in their portfolio, like spend, contact details, objectives, and categorization into a secure single source of truth. Plus, brands can measure, optimize, and report on their sponsorship and activation strategies in near real time. From there, brands can analyze the impact of partnerships via a trusted evaluation framework and aggregation of disparate data sets to drive better business returns. Now, it's all super exciting, and I hope you're indulging me with a product plug and a little bit of a rundown and explanation. We'll set the scene for the chat with Scott today. Now, the chat, however, isn't just focused on the portfolio optimization platform. It's much wider than that. Here's Scott. Scott, welcome back to the show. And I say back because you did join us on the show late in, I think it was 2020, so around about two years ago. And so you know that we always start with an icebreaker or two just to get started and to help the listeners get to know you a little bit better. And last time they were mountain bike focused icebreaker questions, which I loved because I'm a mountain biker myself. But this time, I'm changing it up a little bit. One I ask a lot of people, and that is, what was your first ever job? <laughs> yeah, I um, I always have loved to work um, ever since I was a kid. And I remember when I was 12 years old, I wanted a job so bad. But um, in the States, I, and I grew up in New York, I had to wait until I was 14 to get my working papers, which felt like an eternity. Um, so I'm proud to say that my first ever job was actually working at a bowling alley in my local town and I would help with the food stand and filling vending machines and you know little things like that and I think I was only making like two or three dollars an hour at the time and worked four to six hours a week but man was I proud to bring home that $15 paycheck every week and um, I mean ever since then I've had odd jobs I delivered pizza I worked construction as I was going through college and uh, but yeah that was my very first job and i also was fired from that job uh which i'm ashamed to say um but yeah as a 14 year old i was i was working in a bowling alley funny story because mine's a little bit similar uh my first job was when i was 14 or maybe it was 13 but i was like you i was a year too young 
So I just lied about how old I was, which was weird because the lady who employed me lived two doors down from my parents and where we lived. Uh, and so she just gave me a job anyway, and I eventually got sacked as well. So we've got a little bit in common there, except I, you didn't lie about your age just to get a job. So moving on to the next icebreaker question, Scott, it's a little bit of a double question. What's your earliest sporting memory and what is the first sports sponsorship that you can remember i've always been competing in sports since i was really young i started racing bmx when i was six years old and always did school sports growing up and so i always had this affinity towards brands and i I knew which products i liked and and um which ones i was going to kind of use and represent based on the athletes that i was following and it probably wasn't until I started racing motocross, though, that I really got into sponsorship and started to understand what what sponsorship even was. And I was just fascinated by it because I would see all my favorite athletes talking about brands and and who they were sponsored by. And, you know, so despite being relatively new to racing, I started sending out resumes to the motocross companies and clearly remember getting my first letter back. It came from a company called DGY, which was a, a Yamaha dealership out of, out of Illinois. And I got a 15% discount and I was with a friend at the time. And I just remember I was on cloud nine and he was like, holy cow, dude, you're sponsored. And um, I just wrapped their stickers and I was so proud of it and was really hooked on the concept ever since. And um, as my motocross career kind of grew and I started racing up and down the East Coast and my co-founder of, of Hook It, RJ Krauss and I, we actually grew up racing motocross together and we later started our own race team as amateurs that we called Team Warwick and the uh, we went out to all the local businesses and, and got donations and we were sponsored by the local auto parts store and got free spark plugs and other things and I think what it helped us you at a really young age was just learn the business side of, of sponsorship and that once we kind of took these donations and and products and things we had to really start understanding what it meant to provide benefit in exchange for the support and how to promote these partners and it really was in our dna from such a young age we were 17 when we started this team and and it was you know we were doing this type of thing long before we ever started a company in the space so um, is sponsorship has just always been a passion of mine ever since I was a kid. Absolutely love the hustle of just going around to local businesses and saying, just give us stuff, give us discounts, and we'll figure it out later. I love that hustle, Scott. Now, we've got you on the show to have a chat, and I want to set the scene a little and get the lay of the land, so to speak, because earlier in the year, we took a look at brand sponsorship return on investment with an insights paper at Core, and it makes for really interesting reading. Can you... Talk to us about the top brands in sports in 2022. We are about to roll out our 50 most marketed brands in a couple of weeks. And uh, so I don't want to uh, ruin too much of what we're about to kind of reveal for this year. But that's a really fascinating study that we do every year because it it really looks at the, the whole landscape of sport. So every athlete, team, league, event property, and just how they're promoting brands across social media. Um, so this year it, it is your usual suspects. It's, um, you know, so the top five are Nike, Adidas, Emirates, Red Bull, and Puma. Uh, so they are garnering the most kind of promotional value from social media, from the entire sport ecosystem. And, but the numbers are just astounding. So collectively just those five received about a little over $1.5 billion in value from their partners on social and over 60 billion 
engagements and video views on branded content. So there are just massive numbers that are happening out there. And uh, so this this particular study, and again, we're rolling it out in a couple of weeks, but um, but it, it's a great analysis and really looks at just how brands and how everything is evolving um, on the social landscape. So really excited for that to come out here in the next couple of weeks. And it also looked at value across industries, didn't it? What did we find there? Keeping in mind that we're, we're mo- mostly focused on the social side of things with Hook It, the top five industry sec- sectors stacked up as, you know, so sporting goods and apparel, which would be your Nike and Adidas of the world. Uh, financial was number two. Um, and I'll get to that in a little bit. But the um, but the financial sector had some big movement and is now the number two category. Um, the automotive field and power sports is number three, followed by beverage and then uh, travel. So, um, so yeah, again, those a lot of B2C companies, so they really benefit from the social exposure, um, which is why you don't see some of the technology companies uh, coming up because a lot of them are more B2B focused, but there's still tremendous value being generated. Uh, but yeah, so those are the top five industry sectors that we're seeing this year. Well, taking a step back, you mentioned the, the usual suspects in the top brands. Uh, were, did we find any brands to watch, maybe to keep an eye on? They're on the rise, so to speak. So ironically enough, we actually do a brand on the rise feature, and that's actually going live this week. And the interesting thing this year was it was a complete shakeup uh, because um, six of the top 10 brands on the rise were cryptocurrency and NFT companies. Um, And it's to be expected. I mean, if you look at last year, there was just this massive investment by these companies and sponsorships, and it really was a little bit of a land grab, if you will. Um, I think if you think back to the crypto.com arena, I believe that was the largest naming rights deal ever at the time, uh, $700 million over 20 years. So these companies are investing heavily in the space and really going after market share. And it's done a couple of things. It's driven really significant revenues for the properties uh, while offering a whole new means for brands to engage fans uh, via these new technologies. So. Um, so yeah, we're releasing this study in the coming coming week. Uh, but yeah, so six of the top ten brands uh, were all cryptocurrency and and NFT brands. So just really interesting stuff. I agree. Very interesting, and it will be even more interesting to see how that plays out over the next couple of years as they kind of find their place in the sponsorship industry and just in the economy as a whole. Scott, through putting together the Insights paper, are there any key lessons for brands invested in sports that you can share with us? I think at this point, like social strategies are a must. COVID had such a disruption on the industry, especially when events got shut down for a period of time. Everyone started to focus on social and digital strategies. Uh, so what we're seeing here is uh, brands that have gotten really savvy with how to leverage social media and leverage their partners to reach new fans and engage new audiences have been extremely successful. So we're seeing just a much bigger focus on brand-specific campaigns and initiatives uh, to really leverage the, their partner social channels and, and again, reach and engage these new fans. Because in a lot of cases, the partners that they're working with will have a much bigger following than the brand themselves. So they're shifting their social and content strategies to be leveraging uh, their partner's channels versus their own in a lot of cases. And, and it's uh, really proven to be extremely successful. There's a bit of a view out there that sponsorship has lagged behind other forms of marketing, especially in terms of data-driven information and insights and making the best use of those. Brands 
they spend a lot of money on sponsorships and, and we hear stories of poor management. We won't throw anybody under the bus, but we hear stories of poor management on both sides of the fence. I'm curious about your view. How true is that? How bad is the issue and why does it happen? It's still a, a really big conundrum for a lot of brands and a lot of rights holders on, you know, the, the size of the deals are increasing. Uh, the scrutiny on the investments is increasing and it's still very difficult to quantify. Um, the interesting thing, I think, to start on a positive is, you know, there definitely was a dip in 2020. COVID, you know, uh, created a bulk of that. Uh, but things have rebounded really well. Um, I just saw some recent figures. In 2021, there was $52 billion spent on media rights deals, which was the biggest year ever. Um, that was up from about $49 billion in 2018. So, you know, really recovered from COVID. Uh, this year, there's going to be about $57 billion spent on sponsorships and is projected to continue growing to $90 billion by 2027. So this is all according to Forbes. So I mean, there's some real positives that the whole sponsorship sector is, is extremely powerful. It's still a primary means of marketing. But with that said, you know, the measurement of it is extremely complex, and it's only getting more complex with the changing landscape and the way that fans are engaging with properties and content. So We've been speaking about this concept of Spontech for about five years now, and we've always looked at other marketing channels like ad tech and martech and fintech, and a lot of these other ways to market have gotten extremely refined in the way that you can literally track a dollar of investment and understand the ROI that's coming from it. And sponsorship is so far away from that right now because of how complex it is. Um, just looking at a single sponsorship deal, there's so many different assets and benefits tied to it. Uh, the ability to really hone in on understanding how each of each one of those benefits has resulted in ROI is, is extremely difficult. Um, a lot of it comes down to disparate data sources and the access to the data and the timing of all of it. Um, there's still a real lack of consistent KPIs to be able to measure partners apples to apples. Um, and then I think the biggest thing is that there's really just a lack of, of, of frameworks being put in place to really centralize and organize all this data and make sense of what's working and what's not working. Uh, so these are all the types of things that we're aspiring to do. Um, and we've invested 20 years in, in sponsorship and tech, and it still feels like we're the industry as a whole is a ways off. But these are the types of things that need to happen for the industry as a whole to be to be more successful and truly understand the impact of the sponsorships. I like that attitude of of always working to try and be better, trying to move the industry forward. It does sound as though it's always going to be an ongoing crusade, so to speak, because technology changes, market changes, and we have to react. However, to be fair, Scott, there are plenty of brands out there doing it well. What brands can you share with us who are doing it well on this front? And, and what are they doing that makes them good? Is it a focus on technology or is it attitude or is it a, a whole of business approach? What, what are they doing that makes them good? I won't call out any specific brands, but there are a number of brands that we work with now that um, are very focused on getting a sponsorship framework in place. And it, the concept of a framework is it's, it's incredibly robust and it's a way to organize all these disparate data sources and, and start putting data behind the, the most critical KPIs that they're looking at measuring and evaluating. Um, so this has become really a mission critical thing for major brands in terms of understanding like all the moving parts of the sponsorship. So 
as part of the framework, it kind of starts with leadership and, and people determining and establishing clear goals and objectives and KPIs that, that they know are most critical for their brand. Um, and then a lot of what we're doing now is, is working with brands to develop scoring models to better evaluate not just their current partners, but also potential partners to ensure that the sponsorships are, are meeting like predefined KPIs. Um, so, you know, once these types of elements are in place, you know, really collaborating with the partners is, is also incredibly key so that there's clear alignment and collaboration to focus on these goals and objectives. But it really starts with this framework and this, you know, data first mindset from the organization on how they're going to put a really solid evaluation framework in place to make sure that, you know, one of their current partners working, but every future partner that they begin to evaluate and ultimately work with. Like they're all kind of rowing in the same direction, and they know how these how these deals are contributing to their bottom line. Well, you just mentioned their data mindset. What do you mean by that? What what sort of traits does that data mindset approach exhibit? It's really kind of the balance between art and science, if you will. There's still a lot of folks, and especially in sports marketing, that really kind of pride themselves on the art of sponsorship and. Um, you know, and you see a lot on the property side that the old way was, you know, selling the sizzle or investing in specific sports because the CEO loves that sport. Um, like those, those real mindsets don't really work anymore. So, you know, our, our whole view of the world is if you can't define or measure how it's benefiting the company's bottom line, it's really difficult to justify. So, you know, used correctly, data doesn't lie at the end of the day. So being a data first company is really a mindset that starts with leadership, extends into sports marketing and brand marketing, and really has to start at the top so that everybody is aligned that we're going to use data to uh, really move the needle and, and measure what's working and what's not. Let's say we have a sponsorship in place. As you just said, it, it can be really hard to to track some of this stuff and, and really use it to justify how it's affecting the bottom line. You spoke before about how some brands have the ability in other areas, in Marcoms, for example, to be able to track how a specific dollar works all the way from the top and how it does affect the bottom line. And we do know that rights holders are tracking and reporting on sponsorships, albeit at different levels of sophistication. But it would be remiss of brands, as you were just talking about, not to be tracking their investments independently of the rights holder. So there's almost two sets of, of data there, especially as they're the ones who are actually seeking the return on investment. What, what are you seeing that brands are actually tracking? What are the things that they are paying attention to? What are those data sets? Another kind of old way of doing things was really this reliance on kind of mid-season and season-end reporting. And everyone would get together and, and decide and evaluate like and try and understand how the sponsorship performed that year. And, and it, it was just a very reactive mindset. And that model just doesn't work anymore. Brands are far more fluid these days and they really try and react quickly to critical moments and opportunities, which kind of forces the need for real-time data and insights to pivot if needed. So the biggest shift that we've seen is really less of a reliance by brands on their partners for this type of data and this type of reporting to justify. Um, they want more control and visibility into what's happening so that they can really collaborate and adjust accordingly and, and ultimately maximize the investments. So, um, you know, in our view, the, these deals are becoming far too large just not to operate this way. Talking to brands, we often hear 
something along the lines of them, maybe they use words like we, we, we feel stuck or, or that they're being reactive instead of proactive. What do you think they mean by that? And, and what sort of criteria or, or signs or indicators uh, are there for the listeners who are working at brands that makes them sit up and think, oh, maybe we've got that problem? There's all sorts of reasons, but I, if I was to pinpoint one of the biggest reasons, it's really kind of focusing on the challenge of how you change, how you do things. Um, some of these brands are just massive organizations with hundreds of people in sports marketing and brand marketing and analytics, and everyone's got a, a dog in the fight, if you will. And in order to change processes in how you track, measure, and evaluate these partnerships, it's a really daunting task. Um, we were talking with one of our existing partners and a major brand with offices all over the world and people all over the world. And, and they straight up admitted that we're a, a decentralized organization. All the different regions are tracking and measuring things differently. And, you know, the KPIs aren't consistent. And in order for us to get this type of framework in place, we know we have to do it. Uh, the most difficult thing would be you know, shifting from a decentralized organization to a centralized organization. And it, it, the comment was that it felt like climbing Mount Everest 10 times um, in order to pull it off. So the best advice that we have is, you know, starting small and, you know, doing a framework, not for the entire portfolio, but really doing it more for an individual property or an individual region really perfecting the approach in, in terms of how you're measuring and evaluating, and then you can roll it out more broadly. Uh, but without the kind of more senior leadership buy-in and push from the top, it's really difficult to drive the adoption. So it's it's definitely a big challenge. I do like that approach of just breaking it up either by deal or by region, refining your process and your approach, cutting your teeth, so to speak, because if you do approach it as one massive project, you may never actually move the needle enough to be able to roll it out across the organization, particularly as staff uh, turn over, come and go, and deals finish and, and all that sort of stuff. So, Scott, what about sh- just a little bit of a shift? What about prospects? How can organizations use data to identify the prospects that are the best fit for their brand. So we're working in an organization, we offer sponsorships, we go and sponsor rights holders. How can we use data to go and find the right types of properties to sponsor? This is something we spent a lot of time focusing on during COVID because there was there was so much movement where there were deals getting canceled, there were uh, properties up for renewal, and there was a lot of money at stake in terms of where do we put the investments, even if budgets were being cut. Um, so the best kind of course of action is this evaluation framework that you put in place should be used, again, not just to manage and measure your existing partners, but use the same criteria to measure your, your prospective partners as well. Um, so I think a lot of brands have gotten very focused on what goals what KPIs are and what metrics are most critical to our brand. And they vary from B2C companies to B2B companies and, um, and really like understanding and evaluating every single partner that you could potentially work with and which ones really kind of check all the boxes, if you will. Um, so, you know, developing these KPIs and, and looking at those to, um, to evaluate your partnerships more holistically uh, to see which partners will help achieve brand specific goals. 
for brands, optimizing their portfolio can definitely give them a competitive advantage. Let's say they have an optimized portfolio and they're potentially talking to a new rights holder about a sponsorship. How should they integrate that data and what they know, et cetera, from their optimized portfolio into conversations with rights holders to help them ensure long-term success? Because both parties are going to be coming to the table these days with lots and lots of data. How do we sift through it and bring it into the conversation to to help sort of define a path and ensure long-term success? It starts with knowing what you want. And a lot of it is learned and you you generate best practices from working with your existing partners. When you go to start working with a new partner, the best approach is transparency and collaboration. Um, being extremely transparent about this is what we track, we know what metrics are important to us, being very clear about that upfront, and then collaborating with the partner on potential activations and, and ways that you can leverage the, the new partner to really achieve those, those goals and objectives that you have laid out. So, yeah, I think being clear about goals and objectives up front, being transparent that you do have visibility into this and you're tracking it, and then just collaborating with them on campaigns and activations that, that, um, that will really move the needle. So, uh, but it comes back to transparency and collaboration. The obvious goal for most brands, moving from collaboration and transparency and talking about data and how it can help early on in those conversations before the deal is even signed and we spoke earlier about tracking everything right to the end and and how it can impact the bottom line that's the obvious goal for most brands is it's it's sales and impacting that that bottom line whether that is driving people directly from sponsorships and 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 making a transaction or whether people are nurtured through a funnel to that point where they will impact the bottom line Without simply focusing on sales, often the end result, how can brands prove to the rest of the organization that their sponsorship decisions have actually been good investments? The concept of of attaching a sponsorship investment to a tangible result, a sales result, is kind of the holy grail. And it's what everyone is searching for and asking for. And it's extremely difficult to quantify right now uh, for a lot of the reasons I kind of mentioned earlier. So I think um, another approach could be really looking at the funnel, if you will. So you hear the term top of funnel, and that's really kind of scratching the surface of, you know, what's the exposure that we generated out of this? And then then you start getting to mid funnel and has it converted new customers or prospects? And, um, and then ultimately getting down to the bottom of the funnel, which is sales. So I think if you can be clear about goals and objectives for top of funnel, mid funnel, and then ultimately bottom of funnel, um, you can clearly articulate how this partnership is actually working with with the funnel, and why, and then being upfront with why this partner was selected, you know, in front or upfront before uh, kind of embarking on a deal. So uh, I think it's having clear goals and objectives from top of funnel all the way to bottom of funnel. Scott, there's a lot of data out there, and it doesn't just relate to our own organisations and partners because everybody has data. Some people are using it well, others are just collecting data. How can organizations use that data to see what their competitors or or maybe their peers are doing in the sponsorship space? How can they use it to do market research? There's so many different ways that you can use it, you know, not just for competitive intel, which which is definitely helpful, um, but we're finding that it's probably even more useful for best practices. Um, you can look at aspirational brands like Nike or Red Bull and and start to kind of 
look and see what, what they're doing and how they're doing things that are driving success. And of course, you can look from a social landscape, you can look at, you know, how are, uh, how are your partners promoting your competitors and what kind of activations are they doing. Uh, but I think it's more better or much better to use for, um, for best practices and really informing how you want to drive your social strategy um, by looking at what brands are doing it well and what things are they doing that's like resulting in that success. So, yeah, we're, we're definitely leaning more on deriving insights and best practices and recommendations uh, for how you can improve your social strategies um, way more than we're using it for competitive intel. Well, on that point, what sort of benchmarks should brands be considering when they're looking at their sponsorship portfolio? Again, this is very much from a social perspective, but, you know, back in the day, people used to look at the number of followers that someone had, and um, we rarely look at the number of followers anymore. It's really, we look more at engagement rates and total engagement. So, um, like how many likes, comments, interactions, video views are our particular posts getting, um, getting into audience profiles now is, is really uh, critical. So there is the ability through um, account authentication on Facebook and Instagram, you can get some um, much clearer uh, visibility into who the followers are. So demographic and psychographic data. So you can ensure that these partners are aligning with, with your tar target consumer. And then when you actually get into um, how is my brand being promoted, we look at branded posts. So, how often is my brand showing up within the posts that this partner is making? Are these posts deliberate? So meaning, is it a specific post about our brand or is it what we call incidental where we're just kind of blended in with a whole bunch of other brands? Uh, that really kind of drives the quality of the branded content and the posts that are getting put out there. And then ultimately that all rolls up to value. So um, how much kind of media value are we generating from all this content and all this engagement uh, so that's really how we're looking at it from from the social perspective. We know that data can help us measure, optimize, and, and report on our sponsorships in real time. So the data is coming to us thick and fast. We're collating it. We're maybe reporting on it. But what would we need to do with that? What should we be doing with it? Why is is getting sponsorship data in real time important? And, and are there any examples you can give us where this would be needed? So from a social perspective, it's, that's probably the most fluid form of real-time data that you can get. Um, the rest feels like it, it comes in piecemeal, which makes it really hard to get this kind of real-time measurement framework in place. So if you look at kind of broadcast data or any type of traditional media data, a lot of the results of how something performed will come in after the fact. In some cases, it's weeks, whereas social, you can pull in every couple of minutes. Um, so where we're seeing because there's such a big emphasis on social strategies and uh, we're seeing a lot of this real-time data inform social campaigns different activations um, these like product launches and big announcements are happening all year now so it's not where brands are focused around you know two big moments in the year they have these these moments and campaigns that they're doing all the time so the real-time nature of social lends itself really well to that and you know, our whole view on it is the more you measure, the smarter you're going to get in terms of how to improve your activation strategies and train your partners on what's working and what isn't working. Uh, so you don't end up in these situations where you're sitting at the end of the year trying to figure out did this partnership work or not. So it just gives you the ability to be a lot more nimble and fluid 
to adjust at any given point. So at some point when these other you know data sources become more real time, it'll help you activate you know more effectively on different channels as well. But for now, social is is absolutely the most fluid and kind of real time you can get. Well, on that point, sitting at the end of the year, everybody looking at each other, trying to figure out whether this sponsorship provided a return on investment, we are seeing more and more performance-based sponsorship deals becoming more prominent. Is data about putting more pressure or emphasis on these types of deals or even just making them more possible? Yeah, it certainly has because I think the the challenge with having performance-based sponsorships in the past was you had to have clearly defined metrics and then data to back it up. Uh, So you do have access to that data now. Some of it can be in real time. Some of it can be, you know, monthly, quarterly, annually. Um, So there is the data there to back up the performance-based kind of sponsorship model. Um, Honestly, it had a lot of traction um, or it started to get a lot of buzz back in, I think, 2018 when Anheuser-Busch made the announcement that they were migrating to this model. Um, And we just haven't seen it get the full traction that we thought it would have at this point. Um, I know it's still coming because with these deals becoming the size that they are now, there's, there's a lot at stake. And um, I think a lot of it just comes back to just how complex it is to manage the data behind the performance-based metrics that, you know, partners need to be held accountable to. Um, So as that catches up and gets more easier to aggregate first and foremost, but then organize, uh, it should make the model a lot easier to execute. Um, Where we are seeing it done really effectively right now is uh, really with athletes and influencers where social media is the primary activation channel. And for all the reasons I just mentioned, it's just far easier to measure and track. So you're able to really cleanly execute these performance-based models and reward for performance uh, when it's either result-driven or if it's um, social media-driven. We've seen it done really effectively on the athlete and influencer side. Scott, as we start to wrap this up, let's look at some key things for the listeners to take away from our chat today. No one likes making mistakes, but sometimes we might not even know we are making them. As such, what what's the, the biggest mistake you see rights holders and brands making when it comes to sponsorship evaluation? What is it that they need to avoid and be conscious of? This lands on both sides of the desk is not being clear on goals and objectives. Um, we hear a lot that it could be the brand uh, suggesting, like, what do we ask for? and um, or that the property is not willing to do that you know so but then we also hear on the rights holder side that they're not clear on what the brand is trying to achieve so it's a little bit of a moving target so i think whether you're the brand and you're going into a partnership being extremely clear on this is what we're trying to achieve um, or if the brand is not being clear and you're on the property side being confident to be able to go ask like, what are you trying to achieve as a result of this partnership? And if the goals and objectives aren't clearly defined, then you can work together to um, to establish those. The second is really probably just a lack of transparency and collaboration. So I think operating as true partners, um, a lot of sometimes people treat sponsorship as a media buy, but at the end of the day, it's a very emotional form of marketing. And there's so many kind of intangible benefits tied to it. So the more that both the brand and the property can collaborate as a true partner, um, the better off everybody will be. And it'll help 
you know, both sides of the of the desk when Scott, as I mentioned in the intro, Hookit has been acquired by Corsa. You've been super busy doing a lot of work during that acquisition and, and sort of the integration phase. Talk to us about what interested you in the deal and, and how it's all going at this stage. To be honest, it, it wasn't something that we were actually even looking for. We've been aware of and had been in contact with the leadership team at Core for a number of years. And, um, and the... I had a ton of respect for what Core has built over the years, and um, the thing that most interested us in it was how we were both really focused on the sports and entertainment landscape and um, very big focus on sponsorship, but we were approaching it from two very different angles. So Core has about 80% of the teams and leagues and properties on the planet uh, as clients. We are very brand focused, so we work with about 100 global brands, and um, and the technology that they built is much more focused on kind of the CRM side, the asset management, data warehousing, whereas we've always been focused on social media, data aggregation, analytics, and insights. And it was just a really interesting marriage between the two organizations that there wasn't much crossover. So, um, and there was a, a very shared and combined vision of really wanting to improve the the whole sponsorship industry and helping brands and rights holders collaborate more effectively. So it it just made a ton of sense and we got along really well with the team. And um, yeah, we, we weren't in market. We weren't looking to sell the company. And um, But when we looked at the prospects of what we could do together, it was just really exciting. So we, we jumped at the opportunity to join forces. Well, talking about exciting things, we know as part of that acquisition that you guys are launching a brand new offering in this space, the Portfolio Optimization Platform, and we kind of alluded to it throughout the podcast. What would you like to tell listeners and what would you like them to know about the new offering and what excites you about it? How's it going to change the industry? We started working together on this this new product and Honestly, it's not even a new product. It's basically the combination of all of our products. And um, so we looked at the kind of entire sponsorship kind of uh, life cycle and, and looked at what Core had and looked at what Hookit had and put together the portfolio optimization platform. And at the end of the day, what it is, is it's the framework that I've been talking about of how you can manage your entire sponsorship life cycle as a brand and everything from how you intake sponsorship proposals to how you manage your portfolio to how you activate that portfolio and then ultimately evaluate it, um, having consistent KPIs and, and metrics. So it's um, it's kind of a combination of what we both do really, really well into a single product and that we can take the market and offer to brands. So, um, so my role within the company is really leading the brand strategy side of things and we're just extremely excited about what this can do for the industry and it'll ultimately benefit the rights holder side of the business as well because it will improve that transparency and improve that collaboration and and uh yeah we're really excited about what it what it can do for the industry you're excited i'm excited if the listeners are excited as well and they sound geez that does sound really good what can they do where can they go to get more information maybe take a look at the product and get a demo I think the easiest thing is uh, just go to coresoftware.com and um, we've got a number of webinars and workshops coming up that uh, we're going to be kind of showcasing a lot of these uh, new products and functionality that we're talking about. But yeah, just head over to coresoftware.com. 
Outstanding. Scott Tilton, EVP Sponsorship Analytics at Core Software. Thank you so much for coming on the show and taking us inside brand sponsorships and portfolio optimization. No, I really appreciate it. It was uh, fun to be on the show. Great chat with Scott. Always a pleasure. And I love reading all that great content they produce, those reports and the papers that he mentioned. So we now have an answer to the question from Brands. How do we properly manage, measure and optimize our sponsorship portfolio? It is super exciting in what is still a challenging environment. So I look forward to hearing about brand successes in this space. If you'd like to connect with Scott on LinkedIn, simply search for Scott Tilton. That's T-I-L-T. T-O-N. And of course, you can find out more about the portfolio optimization platform at coresoftware.com. Finally, if you'd like a shout out or just want to connect with me and say hi, I would totally love to hear from you. I really do get a kick out of it. So please make the effort. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. That's a wrap for episode 114. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, eBooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.